Well, good morning. <laughs> My name is Adrian. That's is like baseball walk-up music or something like this. A little different than. <laughs> so, uh, if if those of you answered the question, uh, what's something that you've done as create that is courageous? I could say right now in this moment <laughs> that I'm standing here. Uh, so again, I'm Adrian. I am Eric's wife, the guy who just was up here a second ago, and uh, Eric's one of the pastors on staff. We've lived uh, in California for about a year and a half. So uh, when Eric asked me to teach one of the weeks of the series about women, I immediately questioned, he's, you know, why, why me? Why should I do this? I've never uh, shared a message in front of a whole church. I've shared uh, in kids' ministry and youth ministry a couple times. And, you know, a lot of you see me singing up here uh, each week. And for me, singing in front of people and talking in front of people with words I've written myself is two very different things. So uh, hopefully my Apple Watch is not going to alert me to ask me if I'm exercising within this next 25 minutes. But uh, so it didn't help my confidence either when I told my kids uh, when we were driving in the car that I was going to be like sharing the sermon. They're used to their dad doing it. And they both kind of like, I looked in the back of the mirror and they're both kind of like giving puzzled looks like you're doing this. So anyway, <laughs> I'm up here in front of you excited to share uh, what I've learned from the story of Esther. And I've thankfully gotten to study the book of Esther um, in over like week, week long Bible studies in the past. So I'm really excited. Uh, even though this is 10 chapters of the book in one day, we're going to do like an overview today. And one of the things that I can relate to Esther about is just the fact that she found herself in a position that she didn't necessarily feel prepared for. And she probably questioned in the time why she had been chosen in the first place. Now, during the week, I teach science classes to elementary school and middle school students. And one of the classes I teach is about uh, scientific discoveries and inventions. So I'm talking about a person each week. Um, and I love to do research about that. Now, one thing is I always am trying to include female inventors and scientists. And unfortunately, it's, it's much harder to find, especially in past history, um, female inventors that, you know, are written much about. But also, when I do find them, it's, it's likely that there's not a ton of information about their life. And I've had students notice this. And when, when that happens, I try to tell them it's not that there have not been brilliant women throughout all of history. It's just that in the world that they were living in, they didn't have the opportunities to make the scientific discoveries or inventions that would get them written about. And unfortunately, we could say the same about the Bible. It's not that there hasn't been amazing women of faith throughout all of history. It's just that fewer of their stories get told. So when Esther and other women that we're going to look at in these series did these things, they did something that made the male-dominated culture take notice. So these women that we're going to speak about over the next few weeks, they are ultimately pointing us to Jesus as we're leading up to Easter. One of them actually gave birth to him, so that's a pretty big deal. So today we're specifically going to look at Esther's story. So I'm going to take this opportunity now uh, to just pray um, over just this entire sermon series and today learning about Esther. So God, I just thank you so much uh, for a church that loves women and, and sees women and their impact um, in, in the story, in your story, the story of your kingdom, God. And so I just pray over this morning, I pray for myself and my nerves, and, and uh, I just thank you for what you've done in my life that um, allows me uh, to share with everyone this morning. And so I just pray that the words that I speak would 
um, be what you would want me to say. And so um, I just thank you for the story of Esther and her courage that we're going to uh, learn about today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I love history. Uh, all history, I love researching history. And I'm gonna give you a little bit of background about what was happening. I'll throw up a map here. Uh, what was happening leading up to the Book of Esther. Now we could, I mean, this could be weeks to learn about what was happening uh, going up to the story of Esther. Uh, but essentially, um, many of God's people during this time are still scattered through all of the known world, which essentially is the Persian Empire at this time. So. Uh, before this, people are in exile, right? So this is what some people call a diaspora story, which means that this is when people are, they're not in Jerusalem. They're not, uh, you know, in the place where, where God originally had them. Now, if you look at the Persian Empire, it's the green part. So this is pretty much, I mean, at the time, people are walking around. This is where they, can, they know of. So this is what exists. Now, our story is gonna happen today in Susa. So if you kind of see almost right in the middle, and then if you see Jerusalem to the west over there. So uh, now a little bit before this, um, King Cyrus of Persia had allowed Jews to move back to Jerusalem. So they're not completely in exile, but most of the Jews are still living outside of Jerusalem in the time. And so our story of Esther is happening outside of Jerusalem in Susa. Now King Ahasuerus, I made sure I wrote that out phonetically for myself. Um, also known as Xerxes, we'll call him Xerxes. Now this, he's who is king now um, during the book of Esther. Now think Persian Empire. The might and power of King Xerxes cannot be overstated. He, I mean, he's in charge of the entire world. So uh, we're gonna talk about now kind of, you know, as a story or if this is a play happening, we have four main characters. So I'm gonna go through these before we kind of go through what was happening. We have Esther. So Esther's a young Jewish woman. This would probably, you know, this is, I've found some cool artwork of them. Uh, and this would be her probably after she was queen, spoiler alert. Um, then we have uh, Mordecai. This is her cousin, who's also her caretaker. So we lear we'll learn that Esther was an orphan. She did not have a mom or dad. And so Mordecai is who raised her. Then we have King Xerxes. So we're gonna learn that King Xerxes pretty, I mean, he's in charge of the whole world. He has a lot of power, he likes to show it off, he, he has a lot of money, all those things. Then we have Haman, and Haman is gonna be the villain of our story that we'll learn about, but he is Xerxes, or King Azarias's right-hand man in the story. Now, we start out, now if you guys want to open up to the Book of Esther, I'm gonna kind of be going through the entire book, but not like reading it for, uh, verse by verse, but you can kind of like follow along as I go almost. So we're starting out um, at a party. So that's what's happening in the beginning of the book. Now this party lasted 187 days. So I don't know those introverts in here like me, that seems like a nightmare. Um, but, and I like to throw parties, but 187 days. Now 180 days of those are for like government officials, uh, royalty, and then seven days were for the people of Susa. And this is from the book of Esther, so uh, I don't have the exact verse for you, but it says, by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. So this was a wild party with a lot of alcohol. Um, and the description of the party, you know, talking about all the, basically the wealth that Xerxes is showing off to the people of Persia. 
Now, we're told, now this is our fifth character, although she's not in much of the story. This is Queen Vashti. So this is the queen at the beginning of the book of Esther. And it, it says that she was giving a banquet for the women at the same time. Now, on the last day of the banquet, um, by this time, Xerxes is, what we can believe is that he's probably pretty intoxicated. He's had a party for 187 days. And he asks his attendant to bring him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display beauty to the people. Now, when the attendants go to Queen Vashti and ask this, she refuses. Um, the king is super, super angry, and many scholars um, interpret this as drunken Xerxes requesting Vashti to come wearing only her crown. So it's not shocking that she would refuse, right? But not knowing what would happen to her, I mean, Xerxes has a lot of power. It must have taken her a lot of courage to refuse this. So. The king is so angry um, with Vashti's refusal that she, he banishes her, and he also consults like the uh, royal lawyers or whatever at the time, and he decides that there needs to be a proclamation that goes out to tell all of the wives, all of the women in all of Persia that they need to listen to their husbands because he does not like what happened to him. He wants to make sure that women don't get any crazy ideas about having any power. <laughs> so that's kind of what's happening there. So Vashti is gone now. Now, after king, the king's less angry, he decides that he wants to look for a new queen. So he essentially sets up a beauty contest, bringing all the young virgins, virgins in town to the palace. Now, uh, some people compare this you know, to the Persian, a Persian reality show, like who wants to marry the Persian king, but it's not the romance story that even the worst of reality TV tries to display. Right? These are young women bringing, brought to the palace. They do not have a choice. This is not romance. Um, this is more like slavery than marriage. Now, this is the part of the book where we finally are gonna meet Esther, right? Uh, we're first introduced to her cousin Mordecai. So we're told that Mordecai uh, lived in the palace complex in Susa. So he was raising his cousin Hadassah, which is another name that, uh, of Esther, since she had no father or mother. Now, some people think that Mordecai actually worked for the king in some way because it says that he uh, lived within the palace complex, although we don't, we don't know exactly for sure. Now, when the king's order was posted to bring all of these young women, um, they were then given over to Haggai, who was the overseer of women. So Esther is one of them. Now, they weren't like forcibly brought that, that we know of. However, some scholars think that likely they would face death if they refused. So this was not something that they had a choice about. Um, now, Mordecai had advised Esther to keep her identity as a Jew hidden from those in the palace, and she does this. Now, there's lots about then Esther and all these other women have to spend 12 months getting beauty treatments. So it's like, um, I don't even know all what would be happening, but think major spa treatments uh, until it's finally their turn to spend a night with the king. Now, I, I could imagine this is not something they're necessarily looking forward to. So after a night with the king, then the women would join a different group of women who were referred to as concubines. And they would not see the king again unless they were asked, or you know, unless she was asked for by name. Now, when it is Esther's turn to go to the king, um, we're told 
that the king fell in love with Esther far more than any other of the other women or any of the other virgins. He was totally smitten by her. He placed a royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. Now this kind of sounds like happily ever after, but remember what happened to Vashti. This is not like an equal partnership. Esther still has to do whatever the king says. And we'll learn later that she can't even talk to him unless he calls on her. So this is uh, where we kind of find out at this point, uh, there's gonna be a party thrown for Esther, but we're gonna find out in the book what is happening with Mordecai as he's outside the palace gates. Now, in what would seem like a coincidence at the time, Mordecai's out there, he actually hears two guys who work for the king plotting like to kill him. So Mordecai overhears this, shares this with Esther, who then shares it with the king, and and this plot is, you know, I'm assuming those guys probably themselves are not alive anymore. Um, But so Mordecai kind of saves the day. Now this, remember, is written down in the royal books. So we'll come back to that later. So this is recorded in the royal record. Now we have one more character to officially meet, and this is the evil Haman. So this is where we're actually gonna be in Esther chapter three, uh, starting in verses one to two. So this says, sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. I wish we could talk more about that, but that's something for another day making him the highest ranking official in the government. All the king's servants at the king's gate used to honor him by bowing down and kneeling before Haman. That's what the king had commanded, except Mordecai. Mordecai wouldn't do it. He wouldn't bow down and kneel. The king's servants at the king's gate asked Mordecai about it. Why do you cross the king's command? It goes on to say, day after day, they spoke to him about this, but he wouldn't listen. So they went to Haman to see whether something shouldn't be done about it. Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw this for himself, that Mordecai didn't bow down and kneel before him, he was outraged. Meanwhile, having learned that Mordecai was a Jew, Haman Haman hated to waste his fury on just one Jew. So he looked for a way to eliminate not just Mordecai, but all Jews throughout the kingdom of Xerxes. So this leads us to Haman's, uh, to make a plan to kill all the Jews. So he convinces Xerxes that there's a group of certain people. So he doesn't really share with Xerxes the details of exactly, um, he doesn't say that this is the group of Jewish people, Um, but he tells Xerxes that these people keep themselves separate, have their own customs, and don't obey the king's laws. So Haman essentially says, these people are a threat to you. And Xerxes gives Haman uh, the ability to um, to basically make a decree to kill these people. So Haman rolls a die. So when he's deciding to do this plot, he rolls a die, like think die, like you're playing a board game, to decide the day that the Jews will be killed about a year later. So very flippant even in the way that, that he's gonna decide this. Now we learn um, now, the, the word for the die is called a pur, so P-U-R. So remember that, that'll, that'll come back um, to us later. Now, it says that dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Now remember the uh, map that I showed you before. 
We're talking all of Persia. So this is essentially all the Jews at the time. So this is a big deal. Now, um, we can't talk, talk much about this because of a lack of time, but it is likely that the Jews would have found out about the future plot to kill them while they were celebrating Passover and their significance to that. So Passover uh, is a celebration of God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. Um, and so they would have been doing this as they hear that they're gonna be wiped out, remembering that God had rescued them before. So this news um, spreads quickly uh, through the Jewish people, and eventually Esther actually hears about it through her maids from Mordecai. Now, she actually sends one of her eunuchs to go get the full story. If you remember from two weeks ago, Matt mentioned eunuchs. Eunuchs are the only men allowed around the queen because they cannot reproduce. So eunuchs are part of the story as well. Um, so Esther kind of gets the complete story from Mordecai. Uh, and Mordecai comes, or the eunuch comes back, and he shares that Mordecai instructed for Esther to please go to the king and beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Um, so Esther talked over with her eunuch, and she then sends a message back to Mordecai. She basically says, it's been 30 days since I've even been invited to see the king. It's not like, this is not like they're hanging out with each other every day. And she even says that if you approach the king, like everybody knows this, if you approach the king, you could, be die, you could die if you haven't been invited. Now, we're gonna go to Esther chapter four, if you guys wanna follow along. And so this is in verse, verse 12, and this is what's happening. And these might be some of the verses that if you've learned about Esther before that, that might uh, be familiar to you. Now, when Hathak, who is the Esther's eunuch, told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai sent her this message. Don't think that just because you live in the king's house, you're the one Jew who will get out of this alive. If you persist in staying silent at a time like this, help and deliverance will arrive for the Jews from someplace else. But you and your family will be wiped out. Who knows? Maybe you were made queen for such a time as this. Verses 15 and 16 say, Esther sent back to her answer to Mordecai, go and get all the Jews living in Susa together. Fast for me, don't eat or drink for three days, either day or night. I and my maids will fast with you. If you will do this, I will go to the king, even though it's forbidden. And if I die, I die. So we definitely see Esther's bravery in these moments. So we learn that three days later, Esther gets dressed in her royal robes and heads to go see the king uninvited. I can imagine that her heart uh, would be, have, have been pounding, waiting to see as the king notices her how he's gonna react. Thankfully, we learn that when he does see Esther, he's actually pleased. And he says, um, actually says to her, uh, what do you want, basically, and says, ask and it's yours, even if it's half my kingdom. If it pleases the king, Esther says to him, let the king come with Haman to a dinner I've prepared for him. So Esther has a plan. Now, Haman gets this invitation and he's excited about this. He's like getting invited by uh, the queen and king to come hang out. And, but at the same time, he cannot stand that this guy Mordecai is still standing outside the gates, right? He doesn't know the relationship between them. Um, so he sees the one that's disrespecting him. And so as he's, you know, going about his business, he's like, I'm going to ask the king tonight 
if I can hang Mordecai tomorrow. So he even actually has gallows built in preparation for this. Now some call the story of Esther a great reversal or grand irony, and this is kind of where that reversal begins. So uh, we learn that not being able to sleep that night, the king asks for the royal books. So remember, we, I said remember that before. So those books have the story of Mordecai stopping his murder plot. Um, and so he's reading about this. The next day, the king mentions to Haman that he wants to especially honor someone. Now Haman, you know, kind of being who he is, immediately thinks the king's talking about him. So he gives all these suggestions, like of a robe and a horse and parading through the streets. But when Xerxes tells Haman that he's actually talking about Mordecai, he was like super disappointed and angry, but he still has to go through it because this is what um, Xerxes says. So we kind of have an art representation of Haman having to parade Mordecai uh, through the palace. And basically after this, he goes home with his tail between his legs, but he still has to come back and eat dinner with Esther and the king. So I got another slide of uh, an art piece. I, there was a lot of Rembrandt, I believe it was, that, that did pictures of Esther. So we have Esther and Haman and the king. Now during the king is finally when Esther decides to reveal her true identity as a Jew and begs for mercy from her people, for her people. Now the king asks her who the monstrous person is that would do this to her people. And she gets to answer uh, him, and this is in Esther 7 verse 6, an enemy, an adversary, this evil Haman. So the king is furious. In a twist of fate, a great reversal, that night Haman is actually hanged on the same gallows that he had actually built for Mordecai for the day before. Now, there's a ton more in the rest of the story, but basically what happens is Esther is actually given Haman's estate, which she gives to Mordecai, um, but they still have a problem. So the original edict that Haman had made from the palace that said that all the Jews would be killed, the way that laws worked at that time, the edicts could not be, like, take it, they couldn't, like, cancel it. So the only thing they could do is actually make another edict that would kind of counteract it in a way. So Xerxes gives Esther and Mordecai the power to make a new decree, and so they authorize the Jews to defend themselves against any attack. So the attack still happens, but now the Jews are given permission to defend themselves. So there's a lot of fighting that happens, but in the end, Esther had saved her people. Now, there was a celebration surrounding these events, and so this happens towards the end of the book, and a two-day ceremony called Purim was established, named for Pur, or the die that was cast for their destruction. Now, coincidentally, or maybe not, modern Jews actually celebrated Purim last Monday to Tuesday, so March 6th to March 7th. Um, And Esther has made such an impact Um, on her Jewish community that she has been celebrated every single year since this happened. Now, we know from the Bible and from history that this was not the first or the last time that Jewish people's lives were threatened. 
Um, part of the Purim celebration is actually reading the entire book of Esther. So that is on the first night, they would go uh, to the temple and uh, the rabbi would read the entire book. People actually often use, now people are dressed up, that's part of the celebration too, to hide their identity like Esther did. Um, and people use noisemakers or actually boo every time Haman's, Haman the evil villain is mentioned. So <laughs> it would be pretty fun. I would like to, to experience that. We actually got inter, uh, invited, I think, to a Purim celebration by our rabbi that lives across the street, but we couldn't go. So I'm disappointed that we didn't get to experience that. Um, now, the book of Esther is well known, an important, an important part of Judaism, a reminder of God's faithfulness. So what can we, as modern day Christ followers, learn from the story of Esther? Now, the first thing that I take away from this book is this. Even when God is silent, he's still at work. Now, if you've ever read through the book of Esther, and maybe even if you're looking at it now, did you notice that God's name is never mentioned once in the entire book? Um, they do mention fasting, but that's like the closest thing um, that we could get to that. Now, if you've never read Esther before, I would encourage you to read through it this week and notice the absence of God's name. Now, most of us can remember a time in our life where we've had a difficult time seeing or feeling the presence of God. And it's often when we look back that we can see God's hand in the hardest times, but in the midst of those times, we can question, you know, God, where are you? Now, uh, I read a couple books in preparation for today, and in her book, um, Conspicuous in His Absence, Studies in the Song of Songs and Esther, the two books in the Bible where God is not mentioned, Chloe T. Sun writes this. First, the absence of God is a real, lived human experience. To deny its existence is to deny reality and reduce God to one-dimensionality. When catastrophe happens and innocent people die, we ask, where is God? When injustice occurs, we ask, why didn't God intervene? Sometimes when we pray, we do not feel any divine assurance or sense of direction. And when we wonder, God, are you there? The experience of the absence of God captures a part of humanity's encounter with the divine, and this absence should be recognized rather than suppressed. Now, I wonder um, if Esther felt this absence in her years in the king's harem. It was years from the time Esther became queen until the story that she goes to the king. So not only did she grow up in exile, she's orphaned. Uh, she then is separated from the only family that she knows or has, Mordecai. Uh, not only this, but she has to hide her, eyes at her identity as a Jew. So I could imagine in those years in the palace asking God, like, God, why am I here? What am I doing here? And we can look back at the book of Esther and say, Esther, you were there for such a time as this. You're gonna save your entire people. There are t-shirts made about you. There's wall art, you know? But in those years, Esther doesn't know this plan. She had no idea in the days leading up to approaching the king whether she would live or die. So maybe you're in a time of waiting and questioning God about your current circumstances. Uh, asking questions like, why, God, why didn't you intervene? Or God, are you even there? Uh, in the midst of the circumstances, there might not be an easy answer, but we serve a God that we can cry out to in the midst of these circumstances. Now, there are entire books written on why God's name was not mentioned in Esther, and I read a couple of them, but essentially, the, the answer is we don't really know. Uh, but I wonder if God wants us to ask 
when we read this book, where are you? God can handle our questioning. He can handle us crying out to him. Now, I can remember a time when I felt like this. Now, we were um, in Ohio, so that's where we grew up. That's where all our family is. And we were in a time of complete unknown. Uh, Eric was looking for a new job in ministry. Uh, I was a stay-at-home mom. We had two little kids, one that was we knew would have future heart surgery. And I just remember begging God during this time, begging him for a way for us to stay close to our family. Um, and those prayers were met with silence and disappointment. Uh, but after months of, of telling God what my plans were for our life, I finally surrendered to him. Uh, the idea of moving was still terrifying and not what I would have chosen. Uh, but after much wrestling and feeling like he wasn't hearing me, I remember, and I still have a vivid memory, driving home from the grocery store and just finally telling him, let whatever your will is be mine and help me to want what you want and to desire what you desire. And this is not a complete parable to Esther. I wasn't saying if I die, I die. <laughs> but I was willing to take a step of faith not knowing what the outcome would be. And I wish I had like another 30 minutes to tell you the blessings that came with that step of faith and then future steps of faith that ultimately has led us to be here with all of you. And I have hindsight now. Uh, and we have hindsight when it comes to Esther's story. Esther's faith and willingness to risk everything to save her people is just a glimpse of what Jesus would then come and do through his life, death, and resurrection. And as we approach Easter, we can look back and we can see the finale of God's story. It's like we read the last page of the book and now we're reading the story knowing where it's going. So we know like Esther's story and my story and our story that it's gonna be okay, that there's joy and blessing on the other side. But here now in the middle, of God's ultimate story, the story of his kingdom, uh, we don't really know, right? So we're in the middle of God's ultimate story. And I wanna share another quote from Chloe T. Sun's book about Esther, and she says this, I love it. The theological notion of already but not yet can be applied to our lives today as the complete realization of God's kingdom on earth still lies in the future. So we're, in the, we're kinda in this already but not yet middle time. So this brings me to another thing that struck me about Esther that's true for us today, and that's this. Sometimes we need reminders so we don't forget, and that might kind of sound weird. It's like saying the same thing two times. But the story of Esther and her saving her people points us to Jesus coming and saving all people once and for all. So much like the people of Esther's time, we live in the already but not yet. We're able to look to the past to see what Jesus did for us on the cross, and we're able to look to the future for the promise of a new heaven and a new earth and no more tears and no more pain. Yet during this season of Lent leading up to Easter, it reminds us that we're still waiting for the fulfillment of his kingdom on earth. And in this already but not yet, we can look for the presence of God in our lives even in the waiting, even when it's not clear. We can take steps of faith even when the future is unknown. And we can ultimately rest knowing that God is present in all of it. So I'm gonna close with this today. Uh, I saw this post on Instagram this week. I think it was Women of Faith. And I, and I thought it, was, it, it struck me as I was preparing. So this, this says, she does not find confidence in anything she has ever done. Her confidence comes from everything God has done for her. 
And I think this is true of Esther, and it'll be true of the women that we talk about in the next coming weeks. So as we end today, I can uh, invite the band to come back up, but remember that God's power works through our weakness. Esther and the other women that we're gonna learn about were not perfect. They were not completely prepared for what they were asked to do. The common thread of all their stories was that their faith in the power of God and their willingness to take steps of faith is, what, is not because of what they had done, but because they trusted in God that was able to do more than we can ever imagine possible. So I'm gonna pray for us uh, as we go back into worship. God, thank you so much for the story of Esther. Thank you for stories like hers in our own lives uh, where you, um, you helped us to have courage. You helped us to take steps of faith when we weren't sure what would happen, God. And I just pray for those of us that feel uh, what Esther might have felt, that feel maybe asking the questions, God, where are you? God, why did you not intervene? God, why am I here? Um, and I just pray that in those moments that we can feel your presence, God, that we can ask, God, where are you? And that you will answer, that you will make your presence known to us, God. And so as we uh, go back into worship, um, talking about your faithfulness, God, uh, that, we would, that we would feel that presence, that we would look back um, and remember those times where you've been faithful to us in the past so that we can have courage to take steps in the future. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.